background of, of what we'll be doing as we head into the new year. I already mentioned that we'll be studying out the books of Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Those are also known as the prison epistles. Epistles just a fancy way of saying letters. Uh, and it's when Paul was in prison. We don't know if he was in prison in Caesarea or in Rome. Nobody knows for sure, but he was in prison because he references his prison chains quite a bit throughout those letters. The one other letter that is known as a prison epistle is Philemon, uh, but we won't be reading that. You could read that over a lunch break, however, at any point in the year, if you want to you know, cover yourself on that one. Uh, we, we will probably take a, a time to see that at some point through the year. So with, with this idea of studying out Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, uh, it, it, it kind of has a, um, uh, you know, these, these, you know, EPC, it just kind of lends itself to having a year with this, with, with a theme around these ideas of Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And so 2016 for us is simply going to be the epic year. So off, off we go for that uh, as, we, as we study out those books. But we want to keep the same continuing emphasis and really build on the continuing motivation that we at least tried to get traction about this year. And that was really beholding Jesus and seeking with all we have to better be formed into his image, to better imitate Christ with this life and with the grace and with the righteousness that he's given us. By the way, there's more good news as I just look over. Luis, raise your hand. He's getting baptized after service today. Amen. See that in a minute. Uh, but again, we, we sought, in, in some cases haphazardly, in some cases deliberately, to really go after better imitating our Lord. And really opening ourselves up to the shaping by the Holy Spirit for Him to be able to shape us and transform us into the very image of Christ. And, and so as we have this epic year, uh, we also want to kind of keep with that theme. And along the lines of that theme, epic will also mean everyday people imitating Christ. And off, off we go then uh, for that. Uh, and I, I do hope that even as this year ends, you take even a moment, but still your mind, quiet your surroundings, and give yourself some time, perhaps in front of a journal, in prayer, all of the above, and, and really reflect on how was it that the Holy Spirit had opportunity to shape you a bit more like Christ? What difference did the Spirit want that to make? Not only in your walk, but in our body, and even in the community of Hampton Roads where he's placed you. Think, think those things through. Reflect on it. Because I think what it will do then is then help you launch down a more deliberate year. And perhaps even a more effective year in aligning yourself with the work of the Holy Spirit. When we read the book of Ephesians, we will see the work of the Holy Spirit in page after page. It's going to be very encouraging and all the more, let's stay the course, constancy of purpose, to really keep ourselves open and inviting to the work of the Holy Spirit as we're being shaped in ever-increasing glory into the very image of Jesus Christ. And, and so that, that, that is our, our goal as we go forward. Uh, we're going to take a look in 
now over in Acts chapter 19. So uh, turn, turn over there with me. Paul likely arrives in Ephesus around 52 or 53 AD. We can pinpoint when he was in Corinth around 51. And so we know he was in Corinth about 18 months. So just, you know, push it a little forward down the calendar. And of all the churches where Paul tarried or tabernacled or hung out, uh, he, he spent the most time in Ephesus. And Ephesus is also known as Asia throughout much of the scripture. And so when there's a reference to Asia itself, it is uh, really a shorthand for saying Ephesus as the main city of Asia. Ephesus is probably the fourth or fifth biggest city in the Roman Empire. And that's behind Rome, uh, behind uh, Alexandria, uh, and Perhaps behind Antioch, there's, there's some debate about that. And, but but it's, it's probably right, right around in that, that realm. It's bigger than Athens. It's a, a very big and important city. The way that you gauge the size of a city in the ancient world, the one big way that they would do it, is they would look at the main amphitheater or theater in the city and use ratios because that was often the meeting place where they would meet. And so uh, Ephesus ends up being a, a city around a half a million people. That's quite large by ancient standards. And we were in that city a couple of years ago, Deb and I and um, the, the Owens were there, uh, Vanita, Frank, they, uh, Sheila was there as well. Um, but anyway, we, we had a great tour of, of Ephesus and spent some time really studying the city and in the, the, the letter to them as well. But it was interesting, even on that tour, while there were maybe like 10,000 people in the city, we filled the streets and it was very hard even to get around. And you had a great sense of just the hustle and bustle of the city. I'll show you some some uh, pictures in just a moment. But what Paul is heading into is a major, major metropolitan area that is also the launch point of influence for the other churches throughout Asia. And those churches are roughly the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. That would be Laodicea, Theatira, Pergamum, Laodicea, did I say that already? Sardis, Smyrna, all of those seven churches are influenced by the big city. And also another church that is not mentioned in the seven churches of Revelation that is right there in the midst of that is Kolos. Kolos, or, or the book of Colossians, uh, Kolos is the sister city of Laodicea. As a matter of fact, the letter that was written to Laodicea was meant to be distributed to Kolos, and the letter that was written to Kolos was meant to be distributed over to Laodicea. You can see that at the end of the uh, letter to Colossians. So it's, it's all this area, if, if you kind of hang with me for a bit on this right now. But now, anyway, Paul makes his way directly across the uh, Aegean Sea from from uh, Athens and Corinth and, and heads on over now over to uh, Ephesus. As he gets there, we, we find him in verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. 
Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul came up, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Now, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy back in Acts chapter one, verse eight, where he said, when power comes upon you, you will be my witnesses and you're going to bring the gospel not only to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria, but you're going to bring it to the ends of the earth as well or to the nations. This is the great fulfillment of that. This is far from Jerusalem at this point as the gospel is making its way out and it's reaching Gentiles. That's what the nations means in the New Testament when they say go to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything. The nations is a very provocative term to a Jew because it means someone who's not a Jew. And we'll, we'll talk a lot about that. That's such a big theme throughout the book of Ephesians that I can't cover it tonight. We will cover it again and again and again, probably through about a third of the sermons that we hit in, in the book of Ephesians. Uh, but here's just a side note. There's something interesting is that so they, they were baptized and then Paul laid his hands upon them. It, it's interesting because in the, the, the events that occur that are prophesied in Acts chapter one, verse eight, baptisms in Jerusalem, in Judea, which would be uh, Caesarea, Caesarea is Judea, in Samaria, which is Acts eight, and then in Acts chapter 19 and to the ends of the earth, every one of those baptism events has not only someone being born of water and spirit and being reborn of the Holy Spirit and having the Holy Spirit flow within them, but on top of that, there is an additional element that occurs. There's also then this external Holy Spirit coming upon them in addition to everything else that just happened to them at baptism and enabling them to do great miracles that give evidence to the fact that these people now are included in the covenant as well. And that was really basically to convince the Jews. Very difficult for the Jews to open their minds to think that even in a new covenant, that new covenant could extend beyond just the, the Jews themselves. And step by step it did. First it extended to God-fearers who were Gentiles that were practicing Judaism. Then it extended to Samaritans who, who were basically half-breeds of Jews, but they had a lot of Jewish blood in them. So uh, maybe I can figure that out. But now there's no connection to Judaism at this point. These are just Gentiles straight off the, uh, the road that are being in, uh, incorporated into the new covenant with God. And the Holy Spirit regards this as such an important event that I'm going to give a little extra miraculous evidence to what's going on here. And so uh, that's, that's why we see in these, these uh, big baptism events, both an outward evidence as well as the internal uh, regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue. He's, he, now he's entering into Ephesus. And he spoke boldly there for three months. The plan is always start with the Jews. And he does. And he argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe. And they publicly maligned the way. 
which was what, what the, uh, the, the churches were called at that point. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus, if we were to translate the name into English, is basically tyrant. So some dude whose name was Tyrant had a lecture hall. You don't want to take classes from that guy. (laughs) But in this lecture hall, which was a public forum where Paul was able to speak, he would not have used the lecture hall during the hours of 11 to 4. And some of our, um, like the King James Version and some other uh, versions of the Bible, include the fact that Paul preached in the Tyrannus lecture hall from 11 to 4. Or from the 5th hour until the, whatever it is, 11th hour or something. Uh, I don't think it's, uh, to the 10th hour. Uh, and so, it's interesting that 11 to 4 in a Mediterranean culture is siesta time. And you do not work. And, and even now, if you, if you go to a lot of the, the countries there, uh, they stay up very late at night. You go to dinner around 9, 9.30. You don't get done with dinner until about 11 o'clock or so at night. Uh, you head into work, but then you take your nap during the hot part of the day uh, as it is a, 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 a topical climate right, right there. So, here's the amazing thing is that Paul worked as a tent maker early morning till 11. Then he would normally take a break until the afternoon. Instead of taking a break from 11 to 4, he used that time to go for it and preach the gospel. Tireless for the sake of Jesus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So, pretty impressive to be able to launch that out of the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And to do it during a time when most people would be like, hey, I'm not coming to that Bible talk. That's when I take my nap. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons, those two words, handkerchiefs and aprons, handkerchiefs could could really, really mean more the headband that Paul would wear uh, as a worker, as a manual laborer while he was making tents. Paul, I would imagine, was a hard working man. Uh, And his his aprons were so sweaty, his uh, headband that, that he would use was so sweaty that any of those that would touch it uh, that they, they were taken to the sick, these, these handkerchiefs and aprons that he used, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Paul's got it going on. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Ephesus was a place that was highly focused on supernatural activity, uh, especially on demonic activity, especially on incantations to be able to drive out demonic activity. There was a robust market. If you had a special phrase or a book or a formula that would help have dominance over evil spirits. And even now we have a pile of archaeological evidence from Ephesus showing many of these books and some of them even have the name Jesus uh, invoked in some of the, the um, incantations that, that, uh, that they would have used. So even here, as it says, the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And these were Jews doing this. They would say, in the name 
of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, and to come out is basically the word exorcise. That's where we get exorcism from. So in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to be exorcised, basically. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them. Jig is up. (laughs) Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating, we love this passage, that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all appropriately seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. If drachma is a day's wage, then we're, we're looking in the $5 million range. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've also been there, he said, I must also visit Rome. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, where he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. So verses 21 to 22 are an aside about what Paul is planning to do. And he, is, he does do that. But it kind of is a kind of a, a fast forward to what's going to happen. So don't let it confuse you because Paul's not now traveling somewhere. He just has plans to travel somewhere. And in fact, he will do it. But nonetheless, in the midst of all of this, we'll stay in the present tense. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. So Artemis, what's up with that? Who's this Artemis character? Is it some dude? What is it? It is a goddess. And it is the main goddess for the Greeks. In Athens, she is called Diana. And the big temple there is to Diana. The big temple in Ephesus is to Diana. But there they just happen to go by the name of Artemis. Diana or Artemis is the goddess of the hunt. And she's often pictured as a, a young woman with a hunting dog and a, and a bow and arrow. Uh, and, and of course, that's a, a very important goddess, I guess, to, to, to their way of life. And she was often given such great honor. Now, in uh, traditional Greek mythology, Diana is a virgin. However, in Ephesus, she is regarded differently. She is regarded not as a virgin, but as the great mother. And the reason may be that the speculation is that some sort of a meteorite landed in the area of Asia near, this is Asia Minor, in the area of Asia Minor near Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern day Turkey, just north of Syria, right on the coast of the Aegean Sea, right on the, and the Mediterranean uh, Sea, basically. And, and, and if this meteorite fell down, the meteorite seems to have uh, had a shape to it 
that looked like it had many, many, many breasts for feeding many, many children and thus being the mother of all creation. So there's a twist with Artemis in Ephesian culture and that she's not just regarded as this you know, young goddess of the hunt, but she's regarded as the great mother, the great mother over, over all. And it may be because the shape of this, uh, again, saying this over again, I know, the shape of this uh, meteorite uh, may, may have looked like a, a, a woman who had the ability to, to in a sense, uh, feed uh, all, all children through this. Some of this will come out in the text in a minute here, not, not to that degree, but I'll give it to you. Uh, by, by the way, Artemis was the twin in Greek mythology to Apollos. They were both children of Zeus, but Zeus was married to Hera, and he did not have Apollos and, and uh, Diana or, or Artemis with Hera. And you know all that kind of soap opera Greek mythology stuff. Uh, he, he actually had a, a different lover, so to speak, uh, that, that gave birth to them. And, and so, you know, they, they were uh, a lot of drama around that, which I won't go into at this point in time. But to say this, Apollos was the god of gold and the god of sun. And Artemis was the goddess, or Diana, was the goddess of the moon and of silver. And it was said that she rode a silver chariot. Whereas Apollos rode a gold chariot. So silver was very important and closely associated with Artemis. We'll keep it going here. This is our nerdy night, by the way, in case you're wondering, like, is he going to keep doing this? All night, baby. <laughs> a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines. Oh, you're saying to yourself... Now I know why silver is important, and I see it's associated with Artemis. And that brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called, this is, um, uh, Demetrius called all the silversmiths together, along with workers in related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and had led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Not Paul, however, just the crowd, Gaius and Aristarchus. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, those people are called Asiarchs, and some of your Bibles may call them Asiarchs. Ark is the word for leader, archangel, uh, enemy. Uh, the, kind of the head of, of something. Arch rival. In, in an Asiarch would be then a leader in the, the province of Asia. These Asiarchs happen to be friends with Paul, and they're like, Paul, you be an idiot to go into that crowd right now. Stay back. So he listened to them. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. There's a massive theater. I'll show it to you in a second. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, all in this big theater. 
which could hold 30,000 people. Some another, most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front. This is, uh, uh, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? This is why they think it's some sort of a meteorite that, that may have uh, fallen that became then the, the image that they worshipped and built a temple around. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open, they're pro-councils, they can press charges, and if there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. We'll, we'll read the next section at our next midweek. But uh, from that, it also tells us that Ephesus was a Roman colony because this is all Roman law. And it was very regulated and very civil as a result of all of this. And so I'm going to just show you right now a, a little flyover of the area in Turkey, which is the uh, archaeological site of, of Ephesus. Uh, as, as it comes into the screen... You see the two crossroads coming to a big uh, kind of circular area. That's the big theater. That's the main street in Ephesus. It would have been uh, really covered uh, side by side with colonnades of different shops and temples along the way. That's the great library that's uh, two stories tall. Again, the big theater, really massive theater. And it's, it's still intact. R really an impressive thing to be able to see. Paul made his way over to there uh, from, from Ephesus. And after Ephesus, you'll see what, what I talked about. After Ephesus, he goes down to Caesarea. And then he goes back on another missionary journey. I, don't worry about his route right now. Just look at where Ephesus is. That's Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And you can see it's right on the coast. It's right on a river. It's what makes it so important. Now, this temple of Artemis in Ephesus, this is an artist's rendition of it. The thing is impressive. As a matter of fact, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 127 columns, each of which are about 60 feet high. Along the front, they're two deep. Along the sides, they're three deep. Massive, massive columns. However, it was destroyed by the Goths after the fall of Rome. And, uh, and so we don't really have great evidence of it. However, there is another temple nearby... And that is the temple of Artemis as well, in a very close by city, Sardis. And we were able to go over there and see that temple. Here are the remains of it. Do you see how small those people are next to those columns? And that's not one of the ancient wonders of the, not one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That, that's just a, well, nice, nice, not thrilling, but nice temple to Artemis. As opposed to the temple that would have been in Ephesus, which would have been breathtaking for, for anyone to have behold. And there's plenty of people, Strabo most particular as an ancient historian, who gushes about the grandeur of this temple and how amazing it was. And it was a, a, a building marvel, but it's, it's not really our concern at the moment. Uh, 
This is Main Street in Ephesus. Uh, these are pictures from our tour that we went on. And large, large streets that they go in either direction. Again, as the tours start to fill in, uh, you can, well, you can see some familiar faces there. But as the tours started to fill in, you could get a sense of just the hustle and the bustle of the city and, and, and what it is that Paul would have encountered as he landed there. And it's just filled with just people all from all over the crossroads of Asia, Africa, as well as Europe. This is the great theater that is, that is there. In, I mean, it, it is really impressive. Uh, and a really impressive theater, almost as impressive as, oh, as Debbie there, uh, in, in, front of that, in front of that great theater. But the, the, the last thing that I just want to talk about for a moment before we call it a night here is a little bit of background that's going to be so important and to get these terms straight as you study out. Well, there are, in all of Paul's missionary journeys, Three types of people that he encounters. Jews, God-fearers, and Gentiles. And many of the Jews were converts to Christianity. It's where he started. It's why he begins every uh, inroad into every new city with a visit to the synagogue. And it is hope in the synagogue that he will reach God's chosen people and give them the best and first greatest chance at responding to God's gracious intervention for them in Jesus Christ. And when they don't, there are some other people that are in the fringe of that synagogue. And if you could kind of think of this as a synagogue, the whole blue area, the Jews are in the inner circle. Behind a wall of sorts are the God-fearers. Who are the God-fearers? God-fearers are Greeks or Romans, but bottom line, non-Jews, Gentiles is what all y'all are. You are all a bunch of Gentiles. Now, Gentiles normally to a Jew are nothing but fuel for the fires of hell. Congratulations. However, for Jews that become studiers of the Hebrew Bible, and they would have been able to study it in Greek because the, the Bible that everybody read at this time was known as the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, they all would have had access to Greek as God's great plan of, of being able to spread the gospel. And as they studied the Greek Bible, they became complete adherents to every bit of the covenant given to the Jews, except they hadn't gone all the way, so to speak, and had themselves circumcised yet. Once they did that, then they would be welcomed in as full-blown Jews into the covenant. But as of yet... They, they had not given themselves over to the, the participation in the, in the circumcision, nor their families. Um, I understand, you, you know, obviously this would all, all be a family affair along the way. But then, in a solid line separation, from the perspective of, of, of the Jews in particular, were the Gentiles. And this is who we're going to encounter in Ephesus, is we're going to encounter a massive conversion of Gentiles themselves. And it's going to bring about a massive controversy as well of what does one need to do in order to be a good Christian. The Jews would say, you need to be like the God-fearers before you become Christians. You need to become adherents to the Old Covenant 
And then once you become adherence to the Old Covenant, then you can kind of advance into the fulfillment of that Old Covenant in Jesus. But you can't just skip right to Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is going to do in the letter to the Ephesian church, is he's going to try to proactively prevent the schism that would have otherwise developed because of this difference of opinion that was going on there. And as best he could, to keep unity at all costs. And it's, it's always easier when, when uh, differences run so deep just to say, well, maybe we should just have the Jewish Church of Christ and the Gentile Church of Christ. Let's, let's just run it that way. But he is relentless in saying, no, we're going to make every single effort we can to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace until we all come to the unity of the faith. And that's the big idea behind the whole book of Ephesians. And in, in, in the fact that the entry into Ephesus begins with Paul bumping up against Gentiles who... Um, are, are baptized without being adherents, without being God-fearers. They're just flat-out Gentiles. And that's how the, the entry into the missionary journey into Ephesus begins, kind of lays the groundwork for the controversy that we're going to encounter along the way. Now, for us all, so what's the big deal? I don't, I don't, I don't know anybody who has like a Jew-Gentile issue in my life. I, I don't really get any of that. Well, I, I think for us is, is to recognize how seriously God takes unity. I mean, no matter what. And that there ought to be, even among our number here, no agree to disagree about some serious matters. But rather, no, let's work this thing out until we come to perfect unity of the spirit and of the faith along the way here. And so, but, and again, it's not like this is a, uh, a charge because it'll be a charge five times over as we go through this book. Here's my simple charge to get yourself ready for this upcoming year is, is to review again, please. And I'm sorry, one last thing. If you, if you want to get ramped up all the more, we'll be looking at some of this throughout our midweeks. If you want to get ramped up all the more, here are the books that talk about Ephesus. Number one, Ephesians. Number two, the end of Acts 18 to Acts 20. We'll, we'll make our way through some of those. First and second Timothy is written to a young evangelist who is overseeing the work in Ephesus. Timothy is in Ephesus trying to lead this church and getting advice from Paul and how to lead the church in Ephesus. And then Revelation 2 speaks about uh, Ephesus as well. You'll be able to get that. One book that I find to be very accessible well-written and by a very good scholar who normally goes by the name N.T. Wright. When he writes more popular books, he goes by Tom Wright, is Paul for Everyone, The Prison Epistles. So if you, if you can uh, grab that along the way, uh, you'll, you'll uh, I think, profit from it quite well. But here's, here's just the last thing is, as we get ready uh, for this new year. Let's not just be uh, hoping that we stumble over something in Scripture or stumble over some sort of a trial in our life, and we miraculously and serendipitously become more like Jesus Christ. But rather, that we are deliberate about this, and that we really do think through, in what ways did I become more like Jesus, and celebrate it. I bet there were ways that you became more like Jesus this year. I bet you've had trials that have helped you to 
better really approximate the integrity of Jesus. That, that, that testing that, that was his has also been yours somehow or another this year. And you're still standing. Bravo. Praise God. I bet there are different ways in which you've become more sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life this year. That's no small thing. That's massive. It's one of the biggest things about the new covenant to, to really be able to recognize that. Uh, I, I think whatever it is, is to capture what it is that God has done and celebrate that before this year is done. And then think through where is it now that you would like to go or where is it now that you anticipate that the Holy Spirit wants to bring you and shape you. And if you don't have a great insight or you're afraid of just kind of coming up with this on your own steam, well, then, then get some people in your life and ask that great question to them of what's a good direction in which I should go. And by the way, as you think of this, state it positively, not negatively. I think where Jesus wants me to go next year is he just wants me to stop being such a jerk. I think where Jesus wants me to go just to, to stop being so unholy. To stop being, there's nothing inspiring about that. Right? And, and, and by the way, Really look at and get advice from people about something inspiring and deliberate and a positive attribute. But don't just leave it as, and by the way, I will be a much better, well-rounded person of greater character. Do not leave it at that. Because then all we've done is engage in self-indulgent introspection that will not benefit the common good. And all of the work of the Holy Spirit is not just for you to be more of a wonderful human being, uh, although that happens. But, but the work of the Holy Spirit is for the common good. And whatever it is that you're being shaped into as you become more like Christ by, by the Spirit in this coming year and what people give you as, as um, encouragement as you head in that direction, look at it. I know I talked about this earlier tonight, but just to re reiterate before we uh, close, in what way... Will this change your walk, your attitude, your perspective? That's all one big kind of lump. You know, what way does it affect you personally? In what way will it affect the body of Christ for the common good? And what way will it affect the community around you for, for, for the common good? If, if this work of the Holy Spirit is done in you, and you all the more, as an everyday person, imitate Christ all, all the more closely. So, amen. With that, let's go ahead and, and break to our Bible talks. And in just a little bit, uh, probably at, at 8.15, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll gather for the baptism. Thanks.